great singing, hymn number 339, For Your Gift of God the Spirit. Well, here we are at week number 32 in our series. We are uh, heading into chapter 13 uh, today. I want to review last week uh, briefly uh, the unstoppable word of God as we finished up chapter 12. Uh, we, we saw in that text two facts of life. Uh, the word of God will be opposed and the word of God cannot be defeated. So those facts of life help us uh, to not be surprised and also to be confident. It, it serves to keep us humble and hopeful at the same time. Uh, that the word of God is unstoppable, that it cannot be defeated is a dominant theme uh, uh, in the book of Acts. It's, at times it's at the forefront, but it's always in the background, the unstoppable word of God. And I want to orient us to chapter uh, 13 uh, by recalling the structure of the book of Acts. So for those of you with us from the beginning, you remember for the first few weeks we went over a number of kind of basic facts about the book of Acts. And one of the things was the structure of the book of Acts, that it can be looked at uh, geographically, personally, demographically, and progressively. Uh, what do I mean by geographically? Well, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And today we're going to begin this third phase of witness, the expansion of the gospel to the end of the earth. Uh, what do I mean by personally? Well, the first half, as it were, is dominated by Peter, and the second half is going to be dominated by Paul. And so we'll see here today that the, the geographic aspect of the structure of Acts and the personal aspect. And what do we mean by the demographics? Well, of course, Jew and Gentile, and progressively, as, as Luke marks out the progress of the gospel, the progress of the word there at um, various places um, in, in Acts. You may remember this quote that we've used a few times, of course God gave us the book of Acts to do more than satisfy our historical curiosity. Like all scripture, its purpose is to inform and deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, with those thoughts in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do pray that your word indeed would inform us but it wouldn't just stop there, it would transform us, that our faith would be deepened and strengthened. As we sang, Father, about the one himself who is its living author, who wakes to life the sacred word, reads with us its holy pages, and reveals our risen Lord. Oh Father, would you be pleased to reveal Jesus Christ to your people through your word, for we pray in his name. Amen. Well, join with me now as I read Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Well, from our text, we will learn a few things about the church the Holy Spirit, and missions, and that is your outline. I worked and worked to try to come up with it. I took it from the title, The Church, the Holy Spirit, and Missions. And what will we learn by God's grace, by God's enabling grace, I believe, will strengthen our faith. First, what do we learn about the church at Antioch? The church at Antioch. First, it's a cosmopolitan church. Why? Because Antioch is a cosmopolitan city. There's, it's ethnically diverse. It's culturally diverse. And, and how do we know that? Well, look, look at how Luke records the names of five prophets and teachers, of five men named Barnabas. We've met Barnabas already. He's from Cyprus. He's already been at work in the life of Saul. He's been at work transporting gifts to Jerusalem. Uh, Barnabas is a Cypriot. He's going to go back to Cyprus. Simeon, whose Latin nickname is Niger, and most scholars believe, of course, that's Latin for black. And so this man is from North Africa, along with Lucius from Cyrene in Libya. And then there's this man, Menean, who's from the elite society in Roman-occupied Palestine. His childhood friend, his foster brother, his intimate friend is none other than Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. Now, there's three Herods in the New Testament, and it's all confusing. This Herod, of which Manian is a close personal friend, grew up together, is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. He's the uncle of Herod Agrippa that we, we saw uh, be, uh, die last week. Um, he, he's the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. He was the one involved in a cursory way at the trial of Jesus. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Just think for a moment. Here's, here's Manan, a leader, a prophet teacher in the church. And he, his best friend, an intimate friend, a foster brother, is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. The one who was involved in the trial of Jesus. What's the difference between those two men? God's mysterious sovereignty. God's amazing grace and mercy in the life of Manan. But then there's Saul. Saul the Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but educated in Jerusalem. We saw Saul come on the scene in Acts 9 as he was on the way to Damascus to destroy the church. And he meets Jesus Christ and his life is changed. These five men, just these five named men symbolize the diversity of of the Antioch church in ethnicity, in culture, in economic status, in social status. And so what do we learn about the church? Well, it reflects the community. It's a cosmopolitan church, but it's a worshiping church. And how do we see that? We heard in verses 1 through 3 that they are waiting on the Lord through worship, through prayer and fasting. And we've seen already what happens in prayer, or to use the title of the book that I quoted, it happens after prayer. It happens during prayer. It happens after prayer. The Lord moves. They are also fasting as a part of worship. They're withholding, they're denying in order to obtain their, their earnest and their expectant. And it's in the context of worship that the Holy Spirit spoke. And all the commentaries I read, uh, they, nobody really knows how the Holy Spirit spoke. Was it through one of the men who uttered a prophetic word or did, did the Holy Spirit move several of them? We don't know. It's, it's deliberately vague, we believe, and more about that in a moment. So it's a cosmopolitan, it's a diverse church, it's a worshiping church, and it's an obedient to the Great Commission church. It's an obedient to the Great Commission Church. Um, Some of you may know the history of the PCA, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church, not of America, but the Presbyterian Church in America, formed in 1973 when a number of churches um, withdrew from what's now the PCUSA denomination over a number of issues. And one of those issues was foreign missions and the support of foreign missions and, and what was being uh, taught and proclaimed. And, and, and so when the PCA was established, there was a motto. There was a motto, and this is the motto. The PCA was established to be a denomination that is faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. Faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, and obedient to the great commission. So you see that what, what we're going to see here is, is the Antioch church is, faith, is, is, faithful, is obedient to the great commission. They're being taught the scriptures. Uh, they wouldn't know it, but as long as their scripture, as long as what they're teaching is is, is true to God's word, then, then it's going to be the reformed faith before it needed to be reformed. And notice what they did. They laid their hands on them. They laid their hands already on Barnabas and Saul. It, 
they're already teachers in the church. They've already been serving in the church. They, it's not an ordination per se, but it's identifying with them in their mission and to entrust them to God's grace in their labors. When, when the church lays their hands on these men, it, it's a symbol of Christian unity, of fellowship and purpose. And then we read, praying, they lay their hands on them and sent them off. It's, it's, it's a commissioning to missionary service. It's, it's, it's the, they're commissioned and they're commended. Now, of course, there's already been evangelistic work taking place. There's already believers on Cyprus. That's where Barnabas comes from. There's, there's already persecution that scattered believers, and we've read about that already. Uh, there's already Philip, kind of an itinerant evangelist in various places. But here, beginning here with the church in Antioch, it is, it is the first time there's a deliberate, strategic, overseas mission. The church at Antioch, in other words, is a model church, even maybe more so than the Jerusalem church. Because in addition to the named and unnamed members of the church at Antioch, there is another person that's named also that's present in the church and at work, the Holy Spirit. And so secondly, what do we learn about the Holy Spirit? Let's, let's say a few words about the Holy Spirit, and I appreciate Rob tying in the hymn with the adult Sunday school series. Uh, not so much the forgotten member of the Trinity, but the unknown member of the Trinity. We say in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit and about this time last year when we were going through the Apostles' Creed at the end of the message on I believe in the Holy Spirit was this statement that the Christian is at all times and in every place in the presence of a powerful person. In other words, the Christian is always in the presence of the Holy Spirit and we see the Holy Spirit, first of all, present and at work in the church. Look at verse 2. The Holy Spirit said. Look at verse 4. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Here we see Luke making it clear that it's both the Holy Spirit and the church. It's the internal call of the Holy Spirit and the external call and the confirmation. This is very similar to what takes place in a denomination like ours. Men who uh, are called to ministry have to have both an internal call. They have to believe that God is calling them to serve in this way. But they can't just ordain themselves. They can't just walk up and say, this is my church. Of course, it's the Lord's church. And so he's the one who calls and determines who leads and cares for his church. And so... There's the, the, the inward call, but there's the out, outward recognition, confirmation by the church. Here's the Holy Spirit's work, and as it were, the work of the church. There's a balance between individualism and institutionalism as the Holy Spirit and the church work together. So the Holy Spirit is, is present and at work in the church 
in the church at Antioch. But secondly, the Holy Spirit is present and at work on the mission field. Look again at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is leading and directing and guiding and in sovereign control. And then skip with me down to verse 9, and we'll look at this in more detail in a few minutes. But Saul, who was called, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Saul being given the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to act for God, to, to oppose error, to oppose opposition to the gospel. So the Holy Spirit is present and the Holy Spirit is powerful at home and abroad. And so third, what do we learn about missions as the gospel goes overseas to an island in the northeast Mediterranean, 130 miles from Antioch in Syria? So let's take a look at missions on Cyprus. Missions on Cyprus. Now... When you hear the word missions, or you hear the word Christian missions, what comes to mind? If you had to draw a picture of Christian missions, what would you draw? What, what comes to your mind's eye when you think missions? Well, what we see in our text is we see clearly that the primary task of missions, the central and inescapable task in missions, is to proclaim the word of God. Look at verse 5. They're on the island. They arrive at an eastern city, Salamis, and they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They proclaimed the word of God, that is the gospel, God's message of grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. And later in verse 7, we read that a Gentile, a, a, the Roman proconsul or the governor of Cyprus, what, what did he do? He sought to hear the word of God. He wanted to hear the word of God. And notice how our section ends, that this man was astonished, not at the, at the power of, 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 of Paul, he's astonished, rather, at the teaching of the Lord. He's astonished at the teaching of the Lord, the, the Lord's word, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, Jesus tells the disciples. Now, before we move on from that, I just want to step back for a moment and, and even though I say that the, the word is the primary task, it's not the only task. You know, the church is full of word and deed ministry. You see, Jesus is both the shepherd who, who cares for his flock, who guides his flock. He teaches and feeds, but he's also the servant who cares for people. And so the church has a balance. That's why there are elders and deacons, elders to rule as shepherds and deacons to serve as servants. Going back to Acts 6, when, when the apostles who wanted to be focused on the word and prayer 
Oh, my friends, what a blessing it was that God raised up spiritual men, others, to care for the widows. Remember, that was a time of great joy because, again, Jesus ministers both in word and in deed. And we saw from there that it's, it's a both and, it's not an either or. But you've got to have the word. You've got to have the word. They proclaim the word. The gospel is good news for salvation. They proclaim the word. In our Old Testament readings with the call of Abraham to be a blessing through the word. We saw in Psalm 67 uh, the nations to hear the word. Psalm 22, 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 96, 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, proclaim the word of the Lord. Now let's take a look at the audience for the proclamation and and Paul and Barnabas head out and somewhere in 46 to 47 AD they're in Cyprus they're first on the east coast of Salamis they're in the Jewish synagogue and the Jews are going to be familiar with God's scriptures you see why to the synagogue first well you've heard it several times or you will with Paul to the Jew first and also to the Greek because you see God's promises to the patriarchs of Israel, demanded that the gospel be first announced to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And that's what's taking place there in Salamis. But they moved 90 miles southwest to the coast, to the town of Paphos. And here Luke relates a particular incident that puts Paul on the spotlight. It's Paul, as it were, taking over now from Peter to be the central human figure of the book of Acts. We read of Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul, the governor who sought to hear. Luke calls this man an intellectual man who who, who is hungry intellectually, and we see he's also hungry spiritually. And in the court of... uh, the Roman proconsul, the ruler of Cyprus. In the court is a Jewish man, Bar-Jesus. Interesting. The name means son of Jesus, son of Joshua, son of salvation. He's also known as Elymas. It's his professional title. He's a sorcerer. He's a magician. He's a wise man. He's a member of this Roman proconsul's court. And we see in our text that as Paul and Barnabas proclaim God's word, this man, Bar-Jesus, seeks to turn the others away from the faith. Let me read this again. But Elymas, beginning in verse 8, the magician, for that is what is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, and here now the the Jewish name is going to fade, and and Paul's Roman name is going to come and predominate. But Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, 
You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And so here in the proclamation of the gospel is, is conflict and judgment. You see, Paul sees this as an extremely serious attack by the evil one. And he doesn't so much call down judgment as he announces God's judgment. This is a confrontation that's very similar to what we saw in Acts 8 with with, uh, Peter and Simon the magician. You see, Bar-Jesus is proving himself to be a false prophet. Why? He's opposing the word of God. And Jesus could have used the words as well to the Pharisees as they opposed him. They didn't believe him. And Jesus had some pretty strong words, did he not? Children of the devil. And here, what does Paul say? You son of the devil. Blindness. He's going to... This, this judgment that is announced takes the form of blindness. It's interesting that Paul was blind for a time as part of his conversion experience. And, and the text says that, that here it will be for a time. For a time. Did Bar-Jesus come to faith? Is that an aspect of God's mercy that this blindness was, was lifted, that, that Bar-Jesus turns? Well, we don't know, but Scripture leaves it open. But right now, God's judgment on him was fitting. We read in Isaiah 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. My friends, Are you, like me, discouraged when you look around and in so many areas of our society, what is truly good is thought of as evil? What is truly evil is somehow lifted up as good, where lying and untruth is commended. And telling the truth means you lose your job. What is going on? Woe. The Lord says, woe, curse to those who call evil good and good evil. And that's what bar Jesus has been doing. He's been making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. He's been, he's full of deceit and villainy. So the proclamation of the gospel, you see conflict and judgment, but you also see conflict and salvation you see not only the dusk coming but you see the dawn coming not only do you see Jewish opposition where eyes are blinded but you see Gentile welcome where eyes are opened the false prophet is blinded again temporarily for a time could it be the Lord's mercy But the proconsul believed his eyes were opened. And he, the text makes clear, is astonished not at the miracle, but rather at the teaching, at the authoritative words of Jesus. Remember in Mark, the people's response to Jesus, we've never 
heard anyone speak like that. He speaks not as the teachers of the law speak, but he speaks as one who has authority. That's what Sergius Paulus is is hearing. The words, the authoritative words of Jesus. And the words are greater than the sign. But the sign validates, as it were, the word. John Stott writes this. Luke surely intends us to view Sergius Paulus as the first totally Gentile convert who had no religious background in Judaism. Wow, I thought it was Cornelius, the Roman centurion. I thought it was some other unnamed. But you know what? Cornelius was a God-fearer. He had already become familiar with the scriptures. Here's the Roman governor of Cyprus with no knowledge whatsoever of the Hebrew scriptures. And he hears the word of the Lord and he comes to faith. The beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. And is that not the case for us? You know, in my parents' generation, you could probably talk to people about Jesus and people had familiarity with Jesus. Why? Because they went to church. That was just part of life. But today, our generation, we actually run into people that don't know the first thing about Jesus, don't know the first thing about the Ten Commandments, don't know the first thing about creation and the fall, know nothing about sins. They're miserable, but they don't know that there's an explanation for their misery. Oh, what a task we have for us today. What a, what a task. And we've got this before us as an example. Well, let's conclude with two observations that will serve, I believe, to deepen and strengthen our faith. First, the proclamation of the gospel is a power encounter. There's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. There's no neutrality when it comes to the gospel. You're either with Jesus or not with Jesus. You're either for him or you're against him. You're either aligned with the gospel or you're, you're coming at the gospel, out of a line with the gospel. There's no neutrality. When the gospel is proclaimed, it's a war. It's a power. I was inter- it was interesting in all the hymns we sang, I think every one of them has said a rebel, a rebellious, a rebel. That's what we are. Apart from the Lord working in us, we're rebels. And there's a power encounter. The, the Apostle Paul confronts the, uh, the false prophet, and we see that visibly, but we see the Holy Spirit overthrowing the evil one. It's not there, but it is there. It's invisible. And we see the gospel triumph over magic and the occult. The word of God is and continues to be unstoppable in the world, in Cyprus, in Bellevue, in Florence. And may I remind you, in your own life. Is there a war going on? right now in you? Is there a war where the pleasures of sin are so much more enticing than the pleasures of God? 
Is there a war right now where you say, look at all the evil people in the world triumphing. And, and, and good is just ignored at best and trampled on at worst. Is there a war in you for belief? My friends, the gospel is not just for those out there. The good news of the gospel is for you right here, right now. It's that lifetime message. It never gets old. And secondly, and finally, missions begins and ends in worship. Missions begins and ends in worship. It, we see it in our text. It begins, they're being sent out from a worship service. And, and we see in verse 12, he's astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And we don't see what happens next, but I guarantee that he's going to be enfolded into a church that's being established. And that church is going to be a worshiping church. Take a look at the something to think about quotes. Missions begins and ends in worship. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what missions is all about. You see, when your heart has been changed by God to see Him as He is, duty becomes delight. Duty becomes delight. And worship of God leads to the witness for God, witnessing the good news of salvation in Christ. I'm convinced more and more that the reason we individually and corporately as a church don't want to share with our neighbor, our coworker, our family member, the next town, the next village, the next unreached people group in a foreign country the reason I think has to do with just the status of our own hearts we've grown dull to the amazing grace of the gospel we've been lulled to sleep my friends the the, the, the smelling salts of worship wake us up and lead us out to witness to those who apart from Jesus' mercy and grace will face an eternity of woe. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you through your word for informing us a little bit more about the church, the Holy Spirit, and missions. But, oh, Father, we pray that what we learn will not just reside only in an intellectual category in our mind, so to speak, but rather that you would use that information as your Holy Spirit applies to us and transform us. Oh, Father, we want to be a church that is worshiping, and we want to be a church that is obedient to the Great Commission. Father, would you be pleased to, to, to enable our worship to lead to missions, which ends in worship. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.